Bible reading for the sermon this, uh, this morning. So this morning we're reading from John chapter 15, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, and then verse, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse... Oh, sorry. Yeah, (laughs) but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you, and when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Beth. Thanks, Beth. <coughs> oh, good morning, everybody. Um, my name's Sam, if we haven't met, and a special welcome if you're visiting. Um, it's my privilege to get to preach that passage this morning. Um, let me pray. There's a lot to... There's a bit to get through, you probably tell, so let's get into it. Heavenly Father, this is, this is your word that we just heard. These are the words of God himself. And we come under those words now, just seeking to be instructed and knowing that in this moment it will be useless unless your spirit works in our hearts. So we're so dependent now, and we pray that you would move by your Holy Spirit powerfully to equip us to live in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, as we're going through, John, it's always helpful to keep in mind the kind of context that we're in. And the context that we are in, in these chapters that we've been in for a little while now, is a weighty context, isn't it? There is a gravity to every single word said in this context. Why? Because this is the night that Jesus will be arrested. It's the night before Jesus will die on the cross. He will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the very next day. And so Jesus has spent three years with these disciples whom we heard last week, have become his friends. 
and he is preparing them for his departure. His departure the next day when he goes to the cross, but also his departure when he ascends back to the Father, back to glory. And he's preparing his friends, his disciples, for that time. And part of preparing them for that time is describing to them what life will look like for you guys when I'm gone. You know what life has looked like while I've been here. What you don't know is what will it be like when I'm gone? That's helpful to know. And so he said different things. And the Lord Jesus said back in chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled when I'm gone. Trust in God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Right? I'm going to prepare a place for you. So it's good for you that I, that I depart. This is actually good for you. I'm preparing a place for you. Our, our separation will not last forever. I will come back for you. You will be with me again. He says that they will go on doing things, even greater works than Jesus has done. You will go on. You will continue to bear fruit. You will continue to do ministry. Greater works. You will get to declare the full gospel of God. My life, death, and resurrection. You will declare it to the nations, and many, many thousands will come to faith. You won't be left alone when I'm gone. You will not be left as orphans, Jesus says. You will receive help, and that help will come from the Holy Spirit. You will continue to abide in me, coming into chapter 15. So I'm going, but you can abide in me. Just like a a branch abides in a vine and gets all of its life from the vine, that's our continuing relationship, even as I depart. That the Father is the vine dresser and He is going to work and continue to work in your life to prune you so that you continue to bear fruit even after, after I have dis- uh, disappeared, uh, departed. And last week, leading into our passage this morning, we saw that the life will be characterized in the Christian community by one of love. Jesus says, you're going to love one another. You have to love one another. That kind of love that's modeled after the kind of love that Christ himself has given them that will mark your lives together. It's a beautiful picture. And it stands in stunning contrast to the first line of our passage this morning, doesn't it? Let me put them side by side so you can feel the contrast. Last line of last week's passage says this, these things I command you that you will love one another. Next line. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So, there's the Christian community. It's marked by love, the kind of love that Christ gives them. So that's what the Christian will experience from other Christians or ought to experience from other Christians. Love like Christ's love. But then from the world, which in John signifies a kind of that place that's in rebellion against God, from the world, the Christian will experience hatred. So love like Christ in one context, hatred in the other context. He's preparing the disciples, his friends, saying this is part of what life will look like when I have departed, you will experience hatred from the world. I don't know how that lands on you this morning. Probably depends on your experience in life. Some of you might go, yeah, I know. Like, that's been my experience. When I became a Christian, I I began to be hated by people around me. Some of us have experienced that from family, from friends. Certainly, that's the experience of many people throughout the world today. 
For others of us, that feels very disconnected from us. Really? I'm meant to be hated by the world. Kind of managed to go through life. I don't feel like I've been hated, you know. Um, and certainly in Australia, that we have that strange possibility, through a strange historically and strange globally, that we could get through life living in a kind of experience where we're not experiencing hatred from the world. That's been possible in Australia. That's very strange. But whatever our story, it's a very good thing if this morning we were prepared to be hated by the world. American um, cultural analyst named Aaron Wren, he wrote a a very widely read and, and talked about article last year where he described shifts in the Western world's attitudes towards Christians. And he, and he kind of described it like this, that once it was called what he calls positive world. And that is when Christians were considered by the world to just be generally a positive thing. Even if you weren't a Christian, you were glad there were Christians in the world. It would be good if there were more people like Christians in the world. Their morality that they bring to society, it's a good thing. And it, there's actually ad, advantages in being a Christian in that society. We don't live in positive world, he said, anymore. He said it moved to what he called neutral world, around 1994, he says. In a neutral world, am I humming a bit? So do you want me to stand somewhere else? Or? I made it worse by mentioning it. Just the <laughs> acknowledgement that it's humming. Okay. okay, so we had positive world, neutral world where society kind of became neutral towards Christians, neither privileged but neither persecuted. It's just another one of the options Christianity is in a pluralistic world. You have many options, and there are the Christians as well. Neutral world. But he says now we've entered into what he calls negative world. From around 2014, he says, Christians became considered not positive, not neutral, but actually detrimental to society. It was a negative thing to be a Christian. There were no no advantages. In fact, now there are disadvantages in society for being a Christian. Our morals came to be considered and have come to be considered harmful and repressive. Stephen McAlpine, an Aussie, uh, wrote in 2021 the book, Being the Bad Guys... How to live for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't. And he described the kind of movement, a very similar um, description of the movement. He described it like this, more in an Aussie way, so it's easy to get for us, people like us. So he says, once we were the bad guys, then we became just one of the guys. Sorry, I said bad guys. We were the good guys. We became one of the guys, but now we are considered the bad guys. I think that's true. I think it's true. I I remember growing up, um, our family moved from Gympie uh, country to Cleveland. And I remember going to school for year five, six, and seven. I didn't have a lot of friends in year five, six, and seven. Struggled to fit in in primary school. And there were a number of reasons for that. It didn't help that I wore an Akubra to school. Uh, um, uh, no one thought that that was very cool. But nowadays, I think it would be. It'd be kind of hipster. So, but I wore an Akubra to school. It didn't help that I had... Um, kind of big round glasses like that, and I had blonde hair. I had a striking resemblance to the Milky Bar Kid. And so none of that helped. I was, I was an innocent country kid, didn't understand their jokes, didn't understand what was really going on, and I was a Christian. I wasn't severely bullied, 
But I was left out. I was called names. Jesus freak, Bible boy, Bible basher. Very clever things. Very clever names. Well done. You got me. Now, I didn't like it. But you know what I was never called? I was never called evil. I was never called on the wrong side of history. No one ever said to me, you're a bigot. That's changed. That's not the world my kids and and your kids are growing up in. Our passage begins with Jesus saying this, if, which in the Greek, the word assumes a positive answer. So it's really when, if, when the world hates you. And Jesus is not going to then say, spoiler alert, when the world hates you, adapt, become relevant, compromise, reinterpret scripture so as to be loved by the world. It does not say that. Jesus actually tells us his ultimate purpose for this entire passage. It's going to frame um, the sermon, the purpose statement that Jesus gives for why he's even bringing up that the world might hate us. He's been doing this, you might have noticed this, he's been doing this a lot um, just in chapter 15. So if you look back at chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus has given these purpose statements. This is why I'm telling you this. By 15, 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's why he's just said that, that first 10 verses. Or last week, similar statement, chapter 15, verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. That's why I'm telling you this stuff, okay? I'm telling you so that you will love one another. Well, he does the same thing in this passage. And it's down in chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So the passage begins with, if when the world hates you, Reason I'm saying everything in between, so that you will not fall away. Fall away into sin. So that you won't fall away from Christ. So that you won't fall away from the Word of God. I'm saying these things so that you won't fall away. Notice Jesus, again, Jesus does not say, I am saying these things so that you will remain popular online to keep you relevant, to keep you well thought of. Jesus doesn't even say, the world will hate you. I'm saying these things so that you will avoid death or harm or torture. He doesn't say any of that. Why? Because those are not the greatest dangers to a Christian when they are hated by the world. The greatest danger for a Christian when they are hated by the world is this, they will fall away. I'm saying these things so you will not fall away. And you might immediately think, I've been reading John's gospel. Doesn't Jesus tell us that none of us will fall away? That he's going to keep us anyway. Yes, he did. In John 6, he says, I should lose nothing at all of what he has given me, the Father. John 10, I give them eternal life. Then they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And we've rejoiced, I think, in the security that these passages give us But what these passages didn't say is how he will keep us. So we rejoice. He keeps us. He holds us fast. How? Passages like this. Jesus literally says, I am saying these things to keep you from falling away. I will keep you. 
How? I'm saying these things to do that. That's what's happening this morning. Believers, brothers, sisters, you are being kept from falling away. I pray by the Holy Spirit that happens. That we will rejoice in the one who think about how Jude finishes his letter. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling. So from this passage, I've got eight. <laughs> I've got eight reasons Jesus gives to not fall away when the world hates you. Eight of them. Okay? Let's go for it. Reason number one, brothers and sisters, do not fall away when you are hated by the world because you expected to be hated. So the first phrase of verse 18 is designed to give you that expectation. I've already said, if, which really means when, the world hates you. This is a common guarantee for Christians throughout the Bible. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Promise. Philippians 1.19, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for His sake. 1 Thessalonians 3.3, That no one be moved by these afflictions... But you yourselves know that we are destined for this, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Kept telling you before it happened, so you'd be ready. 1 Peter 4.12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And on and on and on we could go. Jesus is saying this up front because I think the reason people fall away from all kinds of commitments that they make in their lives is when they go, oh, I didn't realize it was going to be like this. You know, it's like you make commitments, it's like, oh, that's much harder than I thought it would be. And we fall away. Jesus says, you know what you're getting yourself into. This is part and parcel of being mine. That's reason number one. Reason number two, don't fall away when you're hated because Jesus was hated first. Verse 18 continues. So if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus says, in the moments that you are being hated by the world, bring this to mind. Know Jesus was hated first. What you tell yourself in those moments is really important, obviously. The story you're telling yourself. If the story you're telling yourself in that moment, hated by the world, is what is going on? Hey, what is happening? This should not be the case. I'm a cool Christian. I wear skinny jeans, you know. I, I fit in. I'm a culturally cool guy. What is happening? Well, if you think those things, like why me, you might fall away. Better to think simply, Jesus was hated first. They hated Jesus first. And I'm in good company then. The best of company. They hated the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. They hated Him before they hated me. And I'm following Him. So we often say, I want to be like Christ. Would you be treated like Christ? How has Jesus been treated? 
Here's some examples just from John's Gospel. John 5, 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. 5, 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. 7, 1, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. 7, 32, the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. 8, 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Chapter 10, verse 20, many of them said he has a demon and is insane. 10.31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. 11.50, one of the Caiaphas decided this amongst the Pharisees. It is better for us that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Jesus should die, not us. 11.53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 11.57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And of course, tomorrow, the next day, he will be crucified. And the disciples were here, were there for all of that. So when Jesus says, you know, when the world hates you, remember, they hated me first. They'd be like, that's true. Like, we've been there. We've seen that a lot. But it does give you courage, isn't it, to be, not be the first. I like not being the first at different things. I imagine the, the person who had to be the first bungee jumper didn't like that. Would have rather been the second, you know. I like it when I'm playing golf. This is, you know, when I'm playing golf, I, like, I don't mind if I hit it in the water. I just, it's really comforting if someone does it first, you know? It's like, okay, there's, there's permission now to be bad at golf. When it comes to being hated by the world, Jesus was first. He came before us. But then some, some 2,000 years later, we actually have 2,000 years of Christians taking up their cross, following Jesus before us, hated before us from the world, who laid down their lives, martyrs, those whom Hebrews says the world is not worthy. We'll be strengthened if we know we're not the first. We'll be strengthened if you read Christian biographies, read books about the martyrs, You see, while Jesus is on earth, he's the focus of their persecution. He's the focus of the hatred of the world. But he's leaving. He's departing. What will the world do? What will happen to those who are united to Christ and continue his ministry? Well, Jesus isn't around anymore. It's amazing. You don't actually see throughout John's gospel much, uh, you know, so far, persecution of the disciples. It's focused on Jesus. But, of course, if he leaves and they continue his ministry the world will fix its attention on his people. So that's reason number two. They hated Jesus first. Reason number three, brothers and sisters, do not fall away when you are hated by the world because Jesus chose you out of the world. Right? Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That logic is not hard, is it? It's along with the world's hatred, the world's disdain for you, the world actually does hold out an offer. A tantalizing temptation, doesn't it? Saying, it doesn't have to be like this. Why go on like this? We would love you. Just come on side with us. Be like us. Think like us. Believe like us. 
one thing you have to do. Drop this Jesus things. You won't be hated anymore. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Um, this is stories of martyrs all come to mind, hey, when they're offered the way out. Uh, Polycarp in, in 160 AD was offered this in a stadium of people um, bang for his blood. The proconsul said to, to Polycarp, have respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say down with the atheists. Christians were called atheists back then because they didn't worship Rome's hundreds of gods. The proconsul said, swear, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Do you see? Be of the world. The world will love you. Jesus said that. Polycarp replied, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? They burnt him at the stake. Kent Hughes writes, the commentator writes, persecution will be proportionate to the extent of one's identification with Christ. Let me say that again. Persecution will be proportionate to the extent of one's identification with Christ. Just notice it. With each step you take of compromise away from the God's word, away from loyalty and allegiance to the Lord Jesus, watch how the temperature goes down, how the the hostility decreases, the hatred dissipates. See, the absence of hatred may mean something's wrong in your life spiritually. And the presence of hatred may indicate something positive. You're walking with Jesus. You're following a crucified Savior. And He, by His grace, has called you out of the world. Jesus says, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, it does hate you. So our persecution is grounded in the nature of being called by Christ. Jesus just said above, you did not choose me. In last week's passage, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So if you did the choosing, maybe you could set the parameters for your relationship with the world. Maybe that would be up to you. You did not choose, but you were chosen. And the one who chooses has chosen you out of the world. He's not talking about physically removing yourself from the world, you know, so that you could like kind of head off into the, the wilderness and huddle together in a kind of holy bubble, Christian bubble. That's not what he's talking about. Of course, that would end persecution for you, right? There's, there's a couple of ways you end persecution, isn't it, for yourself. You escape, like you head to the wilderness and just only be around Christians, or you compromise. You become like the world and the world loves you. Either way, you've gotten out of it. But we're not called to that, are we? We're called to be in, but not of, the world. So that's reason number three has called you out of the world. Reason number four, do not fall away when you're hated by the world because a servant is not greater than his master. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 
Again, something to bring to mind. Remember, it's a command. Remember, bring to mind in that day when you are hated by the world, the story you tell yourself, the things you think about matter so much. And remember something that Jesus has already said. He says to his disciples, remember something I've already told you. A servant is not greater than his master. When did he say that? He said in chapter 13, earlier that night. Just after he washed, he got up and washed all of the disciples' feet and he said, you ought to do the same. You ought to do likewise. Why? Because a servant is not greater than his master. The master just washed all of your feet, served you like that. You ought to do the same. You're not greater than your master. Same principle. Your life will not look differently to the the Lord Jesus. Servants don't get treated better than their masters. So there's two if statements. Do you notice? Two if statements, both, again, assuming a positive answer. They summarize two aspects of Jesus' life in ministry. Therefore, they're going to summarize the disciples' life in ministry. Servant not greater than the master. So first, if they persecuted you, they'll persecute, sorry, me, they'll persecute you. Right? Second one, if they kept my word, They'll also keep yours. Well, like master, like servant. See, what we have to do, I think, as Christians living in the world is calibrate our expectations according to the way that Jesus lived and was treated by the world. Some persecuted him. That's true. We will be persecuted. And some listened to his word. Praise God. Some will listen to ours as well. Stops us from thinking that ministry is only ever easy. Stops us from thinking ministry is only ever impossible. No, some persecuted, some listened. We are not greater than Christ. That means in our day when Christians, more liberal Christians, call on the, call on the church to change in order to, be, to gain favour with the world, what, so, what such a person is saying is this, essentially, a servant can be greater than their master. They are saying, I'm not called out of the world. They are saying, for Jesus to survive in this world, he must become of the world. And that's just not the case. And you see that throughout the book of Acts. The disciples were well prepared for what's coming. Don't you, see, you see both of these things, persecution and people listening. Right, first day, you know, Pentecost, 3,000 people hear the word. What must we do to be saved? 3,000 baptized added to the number of the church. And everywhere they went, persecution followed. In that room where Jesus is speaking to these 11 disciples now, 10 of them will be martyred. So that was reason number four. Reason number five, brothers and sisters, instead of falling away, remember why they hate you. Remember why they hate you. And the reason is they do not know God. So verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Because they do not know him who sent me. So you won't fall away if you realize what's going on, like the reason why they hate you. The ultimate reason, Jesus says, they don't know the one who sent me. They don't know the Father. They don't know God. So their hatred of you is not their fundamental problem. You've got to get that straight. It's a symptom of the problem. It's a symptom of the disease. So any good doctor knows 
Whilst you might need to treat symptoms at times, what you really want to get to is the heart of the problem. You want to treat the disease. We will go way off as Christians if we think we only want everyone to treat the symptom, which is they hate me. Well, okay, you might win their love. They don't hate you anymore. They still don't know God. You see, Jesus is saying the main problem for the, the unbelieving world is not that they, they dislike for you. They don't know the one who sent Jesus. Jesus says, well, yeah, but notice, if they become Christians, what happens? See, so you might win them to liking you. They still don't love God. But what if you win them to love God? What will they do towards you then? We saw that last week. They will come into the loving community and show the love of Christ to one another. Jesus continues, explaining the same point, verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. So the sin that they are now guilty of is their rejection of Jesus, who is the revelation, the most perfect revelation of God the Father. So in hating Jesus, Jesus says, they have hated the Father. Don Carson puts it like this. He says, By coming and speaking to them, Jesus incited the most central and controlling of sins, rejection of God's gracious revelation, rebellion against God, decisive preference for darkness rather than light. And Jesus says they have no excuse for this. Literally, it, it means they have no pretense for this. There is no justification for this. Whatever justification they may have had for why they chose darkness, whatever justification they had for why they rejected God, whatever justification they had for all the evil they were doing, they have none now. Why? Because they have been with and seen the very revelation of God Himself, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God has been with them, incarnate, God made flesh, and He spoke to them, and He did signs to them, and they rejected it. There is no excuse. So notice the focus in that verse is on the words that Jesus said. The next verse says a very similar thing, but focuses on his works. Notice verse 24. If I had not done, so, so previously, verse 22 was what I've spoken to them. Notice 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, so my, the things I've done, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So it's very, it's, it's repetitive. It's, it's saying essentially the same thing again, except this time it's not my words that they've rejected. It's my works that they've rejected. Now they've both seen and hated both me and my father. So that's reason number five. To not fall away this morning. Hated by the world, don't fall away. Because that's not really the problem. The problem is they don't know God. Share God with them instead. Reason number six. Don't fall away when the world hates you because God is sovereign over it all. Verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So their hatred of the Lord Jesus falls within the sovereign plans of God. Notice how it says their scripture is being fulfilled. They fulfill their own scripture while they become the enemies of God. Amazing. So Jesus quotes Psalm that was read earlier, Psalm 69, where David laments that he's just being hated by so many people. He's like, it's without a cause. 
Jesus is the true and better David. Hated, certainly, with no cause. He was perfect. So when you are hated, brothers and sisters, when you are mocked, when you may be sacked from your job, life is just really hard, made really hard by others, you might be tempted to think God has lost control, that God is not winning, that you are somehow out of his plans. Well, look to the cross. Didn't everyone, wouldn't everyone have thought, is God sovereign? This was the Messiah. He's on a cross. Well, it's good news. Even the, the death of the Lord Jesus is in the sovereign hand of the Father. Reason number seven. Let us not fall away when hated by the world because we have a helper in the Holy Spirit. Verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. See, all this talk about like hatred and, and persecution, you might wonder, man, what are the disciples meant to do? Are they meant to just kind of run for it? Are they meant to fight back? What does Jesus say? Simply bear witness. Bear witness. You've been with me from the beginning. You've been with me from the beginning of my ministry. Well, how are we going to do that with all this hatred going on? How are we going to bear witness? A helper is coming. And he's got the same job description as we do. Again, he's, it's the Holy Spirit, and it says, He will bear witness about me. Jesus says that. He will bear witness. What are we doing? And you also will bear witness. The Holy Spirit is very trustworthy. Why? Because he comes from the Father. It says he proceeds from the Father, and he's the Spirit of truth. He always speaks the truth. Well, his witness is guaranteed. You can trust his witness. You can trust his help. Now notice again how compromise to the world seems entirely disallowed again. What are we called to be? Christians, what are we called to be? Witnesses. You are not called to be innovators. You're not called to be inventors. You're not called to be salesmen of a product. We're not entrepreneurs trying to get something into the masses. What are we? Just a witness. I'm a witness of the things I've seen, the things I've heard, God's word, I'm a witness. That simplifies things for me at least. I'm not in control of someone else's response to the witness. Now, to be sure, Christians need to be careful that we are not hated, like with cause. You know, Lord Jesus was hated without a cause. And if we're honest, we are sometimes hated with a cause. We have been unloving, unkind. We've returned evil for evil. So we ought not to do that. But my job is just to be a faithful witness. It's very helpful, even just hopping up and preaching this morning. My job is mainly just to be faithful. Share God's word. It might be hated. It might be, it might be heard. It's not up to me. But I am called to be faithful. Mark 13, verse 9, Jesus warns about these things and how the, the Holy Spirit will be a helper. Listen to this when Jesus says, They will deliver you over to councils. And you'll be beaten in synagogues. And you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, 
but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit, a helper, a witness. Brothers and sisters, don't fall away. We have help. We have help in the Holy Spirit. Reason number eight, last one. Thought you'd thought we'd never get there, didn't you? Number eight, brothers and sisters, do not fall away when you are hated because Jesus warned you this was going to happen. It's actually very similar to reason number one, but I assumed everyone probably forgot reason number one already. So, But it is how Jesus rounds it out. Chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Wow. What a warning. Who will do this to you? Who is going to put you out of the synagogue? Who is it that's going to kill you? Those who believe they are offering service to God. Literally an act of worship to God. That's what they think they're doing. The irony is so thick. Because in that moment when the person is killed, an act of service to God is happening. And it's not by the perpetrator of the crime. But an act of worship is happening from the one suffering faithfully. This is exactly how the the Apostle Paul felt, isn't it? Before he became the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul. He thought, I'm going to serve God and I'm going to imprison these Christians. He gives his testimony in Acts chapter 26. He stands before King Agrippa and he says these words. He's giving his testimony basically before the king. Pretty awesome. And he says this about his old life. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus Christ. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked them up, sorry, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's the Apostle Paul. One stage, I just thought that's what God had me doing. But notice what he, how he describes it. He says, I, where's the words? I tried to make them blaspheme. He did not think at the time, I'm trying to make you blaspheme. He would never have thought it like that. This is new Paul saying, that's actually what I was doing. When I was trying to, when I was imprisoning them and saying, hey, deny Christ and you can live, I was, tr- I was trying to make them blaspheme God. He describes it in, in Galatians 1.13. says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Again, he would not have called it the church of God at the time. That's not what he thought he was destroying. But new Paul looks back and goes, that's what I was doing. I, was, I thought I was serving God. And I was trying to destroy the church of God. At the same time, out of zeal for God, I'd cause people to blaspheme God. Jesus himself was killed by people who thought they were serving God. Don Carson writes this. He says, Christians have faced severe persecution performed in the name of Yahweh, in the name of Allah, in the name of Marx, and in the name of Jesus. See, when we talk about being hated in the world, we also look back in history, don't we, 
And it's really to our shame that we also see that the church has hated people in the name of Jesus, have persecuted people in the name of Jesus, of which that we have shame, we're repentant of, and it's so far, obviously, from what Jesus is describing here. When we are hated by the world, not when we hate the world. So lastly, verse 4 of chapter 16 closes us out. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So that's the reason not to fall away. I'm telling you, I've said all these things just so that when it happens, what you think is matters. It matters so much. And I just want you in that moment to remember all these things. Think on these things. Have these things come to mind. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, isn't it? So notice it says, when their hour comes, when their hour comes, remember what I've told you. Right? It seems like it's their hour, their big hour. They've got the Christian under their foot, persecuted, ready to be slaughtered. It seems to the whole world, this is their hour, their hour of victory. Well, remember this. Remember, actually, it's their, their hour of shame. And it's the believer's hour of victory. They, will, they may die. And they will live with Christ forever. Remember these things. Remember these things. Bring them to mind. Surely the cross looked like that. That it was their hour. It's the hour of the Jewish leaders. It's the hour of the Romans. It's the hour of Satan. It's their hour. Who was winning? It was the Lord Jesus. He won. He's going to pray in chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. So that's the passage. Let me just tie it up briefly now. Tie it together. We're all going to have that hour in this life to the extent that we're faithful to the Lord Jesus. We'll have our the hour. It seems like it's their hour, right? What will we do? I'm praying that because of passages like this, we will not fall away. Don't fall away today. Don't fall away tomorrow. Don't fall away in this life. There is nothing compared to the riches that are in store for us in heaven. Don't fall away now. Yes, the culture's coming. Yes, it may turn against you more and more virulently, violently. It's not worth it. There has been, I think, a great falling away in the Western church under the pressures of the culture. So much compromise, whole denominations compromising. You listen to the rationale for why certain doctrines, ethics, morality is shifting. You listen to the reason given. It's often in the service of God, isn't it? We're doing this because we think this is what the Lord Jesus wants. If we don't change, the church will be obsolete in 10 years. They've been saying that for hundreds of years. If the church doesn't adapt, if the church doesn't become like the culture, we'll have, there will be no church. There's still a church. There's still a church. When people talk like that, they're missing, I think, a really important thing, which is, do you realize that Jesus was hated when he was on earth? It seems they've missed that they hated Jesus first. 
that we've been called out of the world, that a servant is not greater than his master, that the world's problem is not that they hate us, but that they do not know God, that even their hate is under the sovereign plan of God, that our job is simply to bear witness to the things we've seen, the things we've heard, and we've been forewarned about all of this. In 2014, there was an article in Christianity Today. I read it then, and, and it's, it stuck with me. It's written by Tish Harrison Ward. It was called this. The, the, the name of the article was Wrong Kind of Christian. Wrong Kind of Christian. She began her article with these words. She said, I thought I was an acceptable kind of evangelical. Meaning, I thought I was the kind of Christian that was pretty acceptable. In the world, I thought... The world kind of likes, I'm the right kind of Christian, right? She explains how she wasn't one of those fundamentalists. She liked art. She drank alcohol, loved cultural engagement. She's one of those Christians. She really cares about authenticity, about racial reconciliation. She says, I care about social and environmental justice. She was the right kind of Christian. So when her university, Vanderbilt University, cancelled her Christian group, because they believed in a historic Christian creed and held to a traditional definition of marriage, she had just assumed, she writes, this is some misunderstanding. You don't understand, right? So they wouldn't talk to them. Because all they, she writes, writes about it, says, I thought all they really needed to know that we're kind of, we're cool people, we're intellectuals, and we're not homophobic. We're the right kind of Christians. We're the kind of Christians you want here. You just must have us mixed up with those other kinds of Christians, Right? What she found out was that they didn't actually care whether they're cool or not. The thing they had a problem with was that they're Christians. So she writes this. She concludes that the experience did this, and I quote, it unearthed a hidden assumption that I could be nuanced or articulate or culturally engaged or compassionate enough to make the gospel more acceptable to my neighbours. But that belief is prideful. From its earliest days, the gospel has been both a comfort and an offense. So that was back in 2014. We're nine years on from that. And, well, I don't think anyone needs convincing that there's not actually a right kind of Christian. Better to not clamor for the applause of the world, but live for Christ, a crucified Saviour. Charles Simeon, 71 years old, he said this in 1831. He was asked by a friend how he could endure so much hatred in his life. How did he endure so faithfully? And he said this words. He said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. It's a good way to end. Brothers and sisters, let us not mind a little suffering for the sake of Christ. You might go, it's not a little. It is. It's nothing compared to the glory that's in store for us. Let's not fall away. Let me pray.